I'll turn it on. There, that's better. Good morning, everybody. This morning, I want to talk about um, a subject that came up in Connect Group a couple of weeks ago. We were reading, we're doing a series called Fruitfulness on the Frontline, talking about how we interact with the people around us, how we share the good news. And the parable of the um, Good Samaritan came up. And it struck me that the Bible's got a lot to say about neighbours. So we're going to have a look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, But I'd like to start by sharing some other verses about neighbours that I uh, found in the Bible. So in a section labelled Miscellaneous Laws in Deuteronomy, we read, If you enter your neighbour's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. So that basically means you can scoff the grapes, but you can't take them home and make wine out of them. And in Proverbs is a verse that I'd like us all to bear in mind at next year's one event. I think it's very important. Proverbs 27, 14 tells us, if anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. (laughs) Just saying, inside voices until after eight, half eight, I think. Ten. So as you can see, there's lots of useful advice on on sort of neighbourly etiquette in the Bible. The parable of the Good Samaritan explores the theme, who is my neighbour? And like many parables, Jesus actually tells it in response to somebody questioning him. So I'm going to read from Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. See, throughout Jesus' ministry, we find passages where we find that an expert in the law stood up to test him. And Jesus often replies to these questions with a challenge. So on this occasion, he said, what what is written in the law? That's the question Jesus asks. And how do you read it is a challenge. Because the question, what's written in the law, is, "Do do you know the law? Do you remember the verses? The Bible tells you what you must do. The scriptures tell you. How do you read it? That's not just your knowledge of scripture, but it's your understanding, your interpretation. It's how you put into practice what you've read. 
Because it's not enough just to read this stuff. We actually need to take it and put it into practice. As I read the parable again, it struck me that in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a similar encounter. A rich young man comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what, must, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what's good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. And Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. That came up again. And actually, it struck me that it's not surprising that people are answering Jesus with these verses. Because we're talking about people who've been brought up to read the scripture to study the scripture, and to remember verses. In, in the Old Testament, we read lots of times about write these scriptures on your heart. Keep them close to you. Set your mind on them, meditate on them. So just as we as Christians might go, oh yeah, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. For the Hebrews, these verses are key. These are commands. See, when Jesus said anything's important... When Jesus says anything, it's important. When he says the same things lots of times, it's really important. Later in Matthew, Jesus is once more being tested by an expert in the, in the law. And he gives this response. He says, Jesus replied, the, the experts asked him, what, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. That's a really big thing to say, isn't it? That all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. It's important stuff. See, the law that's been quoted in all these passages is found in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.5 tells us, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And that instruction comes just after Moses has received the Ten Commandments. So this is right at the start of the, the Jewish nation having been led out of captivity and laws being laid down and principles on which they were to build. This instruction lays down what our right response to God should be, a wholehearted love. For us New Testament believers, that heart of love, that heart response, is in response to the love that Jesus showed when he laid down his life for us. See, Jesus made it possible for us to have a relationship with God. And our response to that is love. We love God. We love God because he first loved us. And then the, the scripture about loving your neighbor. Um, there's a passage in Leviticus that tells us how we should behave towards other people. So we love God first, and because of that love response we have with God, we're to love other people. So in Leviticus 19, from verse 9, the Bible tells us that when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of the Lord. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. 
Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so, so you will not share their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the good that Jesus wants us to show in our relationships with our neighbors comes in response to the fact that he's loved us, so we love him. And he loves everybody else, so we love them. So that's, that's kind of why those two commandments are the greatest. Love God first, because out of that love for God, the strength to love other people comes. It's not something we have to do by ourselves, which is a good job. <laughs> a very good job. <coughs> you see, all of these instructions about behavior tell us how we should act. They don't tell us what we should expect other people to do to us. It doesn't say your neighbor should be good to you, your neighbor should not slander you, your neighbor should, should, not, should pay you, your neighbor should. It says you do those things to your neighbor. So actually the emphasis is on our behavior, not on, well, I'll be nice to them if they're nice to me. See that? It's a kind of do unto others as you'd have them do to you thing. So if I'm horrible to Neil, he's likely to be horrible back to me. If I'm nice to him, he might be nice back to me. But actually, my motivation for being nice to Neil should be the fact that he loves the Lord and I love the Lord. So we should be good to each other because that's how God wants us to be with each other. God sets out this pattern. Back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. See, the priest and the Levite would have known these, these scriptures backwards. They knew that at the heart of God's relationship with his people, the Israelites, was a desire that people would take care of each other, that they'd love their neighbors themselves. They both should have helped the traveler. They both put self-interest, either fear of being robbed too, or just not wanting the inconvenience ahead of their responsibility to, to help a brother in need. They should have helped. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is roughly 18 miles. It involves a brutal descent into a desert valley. Jericho's a spring town. That's why Jericho's there, why it exists, why it's maintained. But it's, it's a, a trading route. And because it's a trading route in dangerous territory and it's desert, it was really well known for being, being a, a dangerous place, that there'd be bandits and robbers on the, on the track. So if you went, you went knowing that you might have to protect yourself. So it's understandable that travellers on that road wanted to get through that journey as quickly as possible to safety. See, the crowd that were listening and the experts in law knew all these things. They knew that... There was a preconceived set of ideas in the crowd. They would say, oh, the road to Jericho. Oh, the road to Jericho. Blimey, that road. That's not a good road. Don't take that road unless you have to. And if you have to, take some big lads with sticks. And actually, the crowd would have thought, oh, Samaritan. Samaritan's a baddie. It's like a pantomime baddie. Boo hiss. But you see... The Samaritan would have had access to the scriptures too. I'm not going to get into the history of it because I read 
for about 20 minutes the other night about the Jews and Samaritans and kind of how it all occurs and why they're the boo-hiss baddies and Israelites. And, and, and basically, a Samaritan would say, yeah, but I've got it right and they've got it wrong. We should be worshipping on this mountain, they should be worshipping on that mountain. Divisions occur and that's why there's this relationship. But basically, they come from the same root, the Jews and the Samaritans. So we're not talking about somebody who's a completely different religion or heritage. So sometimes we just think Samaritan, well, a Martian came. No, this is somebody with a very similar culture, but with some divisions. I'm not going to, like I say, it made my head hurt eventually. Our Samaritan acted because he had compassion for the victim. He was in all probability a merchant, so he might not have had a good, as good a knowledge of the law as the Levite and the priest. It was their job to know. But I think the Samaritan would have known those scriptures. But actually what moved him was compassion because he saw a fellow man beaten and robbed and laying on the road and that, that he would have died without his intervention. Compassion. See, his knowledge might, have been as, might not have been as good as the priest or Levite, but he did understand how to love his neighbor. And he grasped something about who his neighbor was. The question, who's my neighbor, is an interesting one. Because like we think neighbors, oh, like, they're the people who live near us, aren't they? I love my neighbors. They're brilliant. I've got really good neighbors. We've, we've had them for a long time, and we really get on well with them. But I don't think that Jesus is only asking me to be to love the neighbours who live around me. See, being a neighbour is about a few things. Proximity makes you a neighbour. So those near us in physical time and space. It's hard to be a neighbour to somebody you've never met. So who's around you? Who are you close to? Relationship makes neighbours. And that's not just the people who live next to us. The people we know on the bus, in the supermarket, in the workplace, socially. They're our neighbours. And community, the people we're in community with, people we're in church with, family. Uh, clubs like the Table Tennis Club, which is fantastic. You want to see people with good, strong relationships, go spend a bit of time with them. They're great. They're like church without church. See, they're neighbours. So basically... My answer to the question, who's our neighbor, is basically anyone you spend time with. God's telling you to love anyone that you spend time with, effectively. See, all of these things, proximity, relationship, and community, are reciprocal. It's a big word, isn't it? It means that they go both ways. You can't be in relationship with somebody if they're not in relationship with you. It's very hard to love somebody if you don't invest time in them. Because it just is. It just is. And if you love somebody and they don't love you back, it takes a lot of persistence until they actually wear down and start to smile at you. But you can wear somebody down and make them smile at you. See, if we love our neighbours, they can begin to love us back. And we can share the love of God in those relationships. So I think that the verses that we read in Leviticus about not reaping to the edges of the land 
and not gathering the fallen grapes are really interesting. Because they teach us an important lesson about God's provision. See, God provides enough for everybody. The landowner who tends the land and prepares the ground and sows the crop, he does all that work, but without the sun and the rain, there's no crop. So when a farmer's told to harvest the middle and leave round the edges, the stuff he's leaving around the edges is provision for other people. See, God provides every, all our needs, but sometimes he provides for others through us and our excess. So the principle is, don't consume everything that you've planted. Leave some. Leave some for the, the poor. Leave some for the, for the uh, foreigners among you who can't own land. So God's actually saying, provide. I provide, and then you take what I've provided you with and provide for other people. See, God's got a generous heart. And he wants us to have generous hearts too. If you've got plenty, there's a responsibility to be generous with what you've got. Because sometimes what we have can be the solution to someone else's need. This is where it gets difficult and where I might lose you all. Because right in the middle of that Leviticus passage, there's a verse that's very difficult. And I'm having a difficult time with the concept at the moment, so I'm going to let you help me sort that out. This verse says, do not pervert justice. That's fine, that's easy. Don't pervert justice, it's not a good idea. Justice is a good thing. It goes on to say, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. Don't show partiality to the poor. It's really hard not to, isn't it? Our favoritism to the rich, actually it's quite hard not to do that. This is a bit where you might not agree with me. See, there's a growing problem today with things like food poverty because of lots of changes to benefit systems. Um, lots of reasons. Over the last few years, through the work I do in the cafe... We run a food bank, so I've met lots of people who are in food poverty. And some of the people in food poverty are because of benefit sanctions, are because of changes in their circumstance, which the system is very slow to respond to. But a lot of them are because they've got zero-hour contracts at work. So how do you budget and plan long-term when one week you might have 30 hours and the next week you might have six? How are you feeding your family? What... How do you prioritise then? There's also a growing problem with rough sleepers in the town, in this area. And there are some people who sleep rough on the streets who do actually have places to stay, which is just mind-blowing. They choose to present themselves as homeless. And it's really hard to know who we should help and how. In the cafe, we often have to make quick decisions about how to respond to people who come in and ask for things. And it's getting quite difficult at the moment. I'm finding it really challenging. So listen carefully, and don't judge me too harshly for this, but sometimes I just ask people to leave without giving them anything. 
I never do it lightly, but I believe that it's the right decision. Because the cafe is a community made up of all kinds of people. It's made up of um, people with children, older people. It's made up of vulnerable people. Some of our volunteers are vulnerable adults. So if we only reach out to the poor, we can actually ignore the majority of people that are our neighbours. So this is, this is really difficult stuff. Balance is really difficult here. If we solely, if we, if we decided to solely do the cafe to help people who are struggling financially and are poor, then we'd only reach a small number of people. If we run a cafe that's open to the whole community and give people who come in sensibly something to eat or drink, then we can bring them into a community. And that community is actually what, what's at the heart of all these instructions that God gives us about loving our neighbours. He wants community. I think that these verses that tell us not to show partiality to the poor, partiality is an inclination to favour one group over others. So I'm not saying don't help the poor. What I'm saying is you can't do that to the exclusion of everybody else. So are you all still friends with me? See, if we only do that, we ignore a vast number of people who need God's love. Huge number of people who need God's love. So we shouldn't show favoritism for the great either, bending over backwards to make somebody who's already privileged feel even better about themselves. Our society today favours celebrity. And celebrities matter because God loves them, but he loves everybody else too. The gospel's for all people, including the poor and the great and everybody in between. You see, if we only meet the physical need of hunger, but don't make meaningful connections with people, they'll be hungry again. Or they'll be lonely again. Or they'll be lost again. So what we need to find are ways to meet the deepest, most urgent need in our society. And that's actually the need for connection with with our Father God. That's a greater need. And sometimes you need to meet the immediate need and feed somebody who's hungry. And then build relationship and earn the right to talk about God. And that's fine. But if somebody turns up at the cafe and they're drunk or high or aggressive, they're just asked to leave. Because we have a community of people. I love the community in the cafe and I want to protect it. So God's like that with us. He loves us and he wants to protect us. See, we've only got one gospel, one piece of good news, one car message. And that's great because that one gospel that good news that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins so that we can have a relationship with God fits every situation fits every need fits every person we don't need a trendy appealing gospel we've got a gospel that just is everything one fits one size fits all the good news is for everyone regardless of the finances Regardless of the social status, regardless of gender or agenda, the gospel is one size fits all. 
Jesus' sacrifice is enough for everyone. So when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, he was answering questions intended to test him, sometimes even trap him. Questions asked by clever people, by established teachers, scholars, leaders of the nations, experts. The expert in the law who asked, who's my neighbor, wouldn't have expected an example which put the compassion of an outsider, a Samaritan, above the pedigree of a priest or Levite. Jesus was messing with their heads properly. Properly messing with people's heads. The expert's answer to the question, um, who was the man's neighbor in the parable, is interesting. He doesn't even bring himself to say it was the Samaritan. Did you notice that when we read it? He says, and, and, and who, who was the neighbor? He can't, the expert in law can't even say it was the Samaritan. He says it was the man who showed mercy. <laughs> he can't even bring himself to say it. You've got me, but I'm not saying it. I'm not saying it was the Samaritan. I'm not. We as Christians have received mercy from God. And that should always be our motivation, to show mercy to others. It's really hard, isn't it, when we're faced with lots of different needs. Because what do we do about the poor? What do we do about the rough sleepers? How do we help to meet their needs? Well, actually, Paul said something a lot from this platform that I really agree with. We can't fix other people. So if somebody is choosing a lifestyle like sleeping rough, for whatever reasons, and that's usually not good reasons, it's normally mental health reasons, it's normally, normally addiction reasons. But if they're choosing that, we can't change them. We can pray that God will get them to the place where they can be changed, but we can't change them. We can't actually fix anybody. And if we think we can, we get ourselves into trouble. Because we start running around trying to fix things, and we can't fix things. God fixes things. Yeah. Our job is to be present and to be a living example of the mercy and grace that we've received from God. That's why it's the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your might and all your strength first. Because out of that, we're able to love our neighbor as ourselves. And it has to be that way around because we can't fix people, but God can. So... I think Jesus is, is giving this example to show that, that actually the neighbor can be anybody. It can be the Samaritan. He could have given the, the example as the priest or the Levite, but he chose the Samaritan. Because God often picks the unlikely to represent him. I'm a living example of that. I'm an unlikely person that God has picked. And through his grace and mercy, allowed me to speak this morning. It's nothing to do with ability. It's to do with the love that God lavished on me and the love that I have back for God. And all ministry, whether it's standing up in church or it's what we do through the week, has to come from that relationship with God. Can I have the band back, please? To set as a challenge for this week. My challenge is to, 
to know better what to do when I'm presented with need, to know what the right decisions are, and that can only come from God. But I can never fix somebody. All I can do is represent, is present God to somebody and offer them the possibility of being fixed by God, the creator. So this week, I think we should, can I ask you just to challenge yourself this week? You know, like Jesus asked questions and, and gave challenges. Can we all ask God to give us an opportunity to be a good neighbor in some way this week, in our situations, wherever we are, whoever we're with? And that we learn to pray that that relationship of being a good neighbor will help us to be able to speak and share the good news of Jesus with people. Because actually the only need that is really, the deepest need within all of us is to know God. Um, So that's the challenge for this week. I'm going to pray and hand back to the, the band. Lord, we want to thank you that you loved us first. And because you loved us, we can love you. We can be in relationship with you. Lord, we thank you that you call us your children. And Lord, we thank you that that you give us the instruction to love our neighbours. Lord, in all of our lives this week, show us who you want to be who you want us to be good neighbours to. And Lord, we just pray that that relationship will open up a chance for us to share the good news that, that of the gospel, the good news that you came to seek and save the lost. Lord, we just pray that you give us all the courage to step out and build relationships this week. In your name, amen.